The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I apologize for the serious technical errors at the beginning of this broadcast, but I think we're ready to roll now. I want to deal with a very serious issue, and I'm going to begin by sharing a part of the story of Charles Simeon. He was a man born in the 1700s. He was a man very much in touch with God. He said, I'm not much afraid of true religion getting too fashionable. For I have been too long in the forefront of the battle, and I know the enmity of the human heart. This graduate of King's College, Cambridge, and also the vicar of Trinity Church, an Anglican church, was well qualified from experience to make those statements. Not many ministers of the gospel have endured such continued opposition from their parishioners. Now, very few people have heard of Charles Simeon and his writings. They're not well known. But we owe him a great deal of gratitude for the model he gave to us and those he influenced who became very well known. He was one of those Christians who was a true saint, hidden and obscure. Some people make history with a lot of noise. This man was as silent as the dawn. Charles Simeon had entered the kingdom of God through the birth pangs of old-fashioned conviction for sin. He passed from death unto life, which transferred him from the family of the first Adam into the family of the last Adam. His birthing into this new family was no vague hope-so, guess-so. No, it was very bold. He was no longer a member of the family of ancient Adam. The world knew him not, and they ill-treated him, though it could not dismiss him from its calculations. When he became a Christian, it was early on an Easter morning, and hallelujahs poured forth from a heart glowing with a transformation and change of heart. He entered a new dimension, and it was strictly the supernatural work of God that quickened his sensibilities. There was a height and a depth, a breadth and a width in the love of Christ that he felt was to be explored and which he could not hope to accomplish in so brief a time as the 70 years allotted him. He felt it would take him an eternity to finish his adventure in the spiritual kingdom. We should not wonder then that he was misunderstood by his contemporary churchmen who had never 
through the Spirit's revelation, conceived of conceived of religion as anything but a doctrine to be learned and a set of rules to be followed. Now, his family had been closely associated with the Church of England. And Charles Simeon had grown up in the church. But he had, for those many years, no conception of what it really meant to be a Christian. He entered Cambridge as a student. He went to Eton, which was a place he referred to later as a, a den of iniquity. At 19, he entered King's College, Cambridge, with a scholarship and a fellowship. And he held that fellowship until his death. In May 1782, he was ordained deacon. A young clergyman felt himself an undone sinner who looked alone to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and desired to live only to make him known. He was persuaded that there must be somebody in the world whose views and feelings accorded with his own. And if there was any minister of this description, he would gladly become his curate and serve him gratis, free of charge. But he was chosen, and he became a pastor. He was fully ordained now, and he was made vicar of Trinity Church. Now, there were many in the congregation who did not want him to be the vicar. But the bishop said, no, he will be your vicar. And for 54 years, he faithfully served as the vicar of Trinity Church. Now, it was very clear that his teaching was not acceptable to the members of this congregation. And many of the wealthy locked their pews so no one could sit in them and withdrew from the church. But students would come and they would listen to his preaching and they sat in the aisles of the church because all of the the pews were locked shut. This situation lasted for more than 10 years. He tried to make room for additional visitors to have new wooden benches, but the church wardens came and threw them out of the doors of the church into the green. Stones were often hurled at the windows. His message was very, very unpopular. And it was during these years, as he preached a straight, honest gospel of Jesus Christ, confronting sinners, calling them to repent, calling sinners to get serious about Jesus and leave behind their cultural religion. 
he was extremely lonely. Spirituality was at a very low ebb at Cambridge. Discipline was lax. Drunkenness was everywhere. The Wesleyan revival had deeply influenced Oxford University, but it had totally bypassed Cambridge. Now, they made up a name for him. Sim. It was a term of scorn and derision. And the student body would not be seen walking across campus with him. One young student, however, was bold enough to embrace the teachings of this saint. And though obtaining excellent marks on the finals, he was downgraded because he was friendly with this pastor who was so scorned. Both in church and on the streets, the contempt was shown. Physical martyrdom might have been easier to bear than the poignant isolation and loneliness, but it was borne uncomplainingly by this naturally rather hot-tempered young man who was learning through his suffering the lessons of humility. Many years later, Charles Simeon told of the anguish endured during this period. He wrote, When I was an object of much contempt and derision in the university, I strolled forth one day, buffeted, afflicted, with my little testament in my hand, and I prayed earnestly to my God that he would comfort me with some cordial word from his word, and that on opening the book I might find some text that would sustain me. It was not for direction I was looking, for I was no friend to such superstitions. The first text which caught my eye was this. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. You know, Simeon is the same as Simon. It's the same name. What a word of instruction was here. What a blessed hint for my encouragement to have the cross laid upon me that I might bear it after Jesus. What a privilege. It was enough. I could leap and shout for joy. Lay it on me, Lord, I cried. And henceforth, I bound persecution as the wreath of glory around my brow. He wrote later, speaking out of his loneliness and his suffering and his persecution. If we go back to the beginning of the world, we shall not find one faithful minister that ever escaped the hatred of those around him. Noah condemned the word, the world, 
in his ministrations and was rewarded by them with scorn and contempt. If we ask how Moses, David, Elijah, and all the prophets were treated, our Lord has told us, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? As for the apostles, our blessed Lord plainly warned them that they that they also should have their cross to bear, being hated and reviled for his sake. But it may be thought that our blessed Savior would never become an object of aversion to any, since the perfection of his wisdom and the extent of his goodness and the sufficiency of his power would preclude a possibility of his being regarded with any feelings but those of love and gratitude, Yet though he spake as never any man spake, and wrought miracles far more numerous than those which had been wrought from the foundation of the world, he was more an object of hatred than any other. As he says, the world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify it that the deeds therefore are evil." Even at that day, there is not to be found on earth one faithful minister who does not experience the truth of that assertion. If they have hated me, they will hate you also. It matters not what wisdom these servants of God exercise or what talents they possess or what blamelessness they maintain. If they will discharge their duty faithfully to God and man, they shall surely be made comfortable and confirmable to their Savior's image, and they will be hated and called the house of Beelzebub. So as Charles Simeon was indeed facing the suffering and reproach that every man of God must meet, yet he never flinched before its dread approach, nor did he soften God's truth to please sinful carnal men. There are two ways in which to work for God or with God. Most Christians have labored for God only to realize later that there is a better way, and that is to work with Him. The Bible asserts that what is done in secret with the direction of the Lord of the harvest for the heavenly Father's pleasure alone receives a more lasting reward than that which is praised because it is accorded with the prevailing notion of Christian service. You know, I, I look at this man's life and it's very clear. Most of us in this day are determined to be accepted at any cost, even the cost of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I confess, as I have been led on this road, it has been a road, a path, a journey of, in many respects, isolation and scorn. My phone is often not able to take any more messages because... I receive phone calls of bitterness and anger because of the messages I bring on this radio broadcast. I understand the pain of isolation and the pain of scorn. 
And many times in the past I have longed for fellowship. I have longed for fellowship with other pastors. And yet I have found a dreadful disease in the church. It is a disease of the love of praise and fellowship. It is the disease of being acceptable and accepted by the modern cultural religion. And all of that is anathema to me. I have many times reached out for fellowship. Even here in the Woodbridge area where I reached out to the leading pastor of our area and was told, please leave Woodbridge, you're not wanted here. We have enough churches here, you should go somewhere else. There's no room here for someone who teaches the things you want to teach. As I have experienced in my own heart, in my own life, the isolation and the scorn of the modern church. I finally had to make a decision that it was the acceptance of Jesus Christ and Him alone that I would desire. And so I too have spent much time alone, much time in the prayer closet, much time just reading the scriptures and then obeying and doing precisely what Jesus has instructed me to do. Most of those whom I have called friends have been pagans. I have found them to be much more willing to talk about the gospel than those called Christian pastors. I don't say this as an indictment. I simply report it as this is my experience. There is a part of my heart that has always been a pleasing person, desirous of of love and fellowship. But there is a stronger drive in my heart. <clears throat> Pardon me. There is a stronger drive in my heart. And that is to watch in hope for my Lord Jesus, for God my Savior, that He would bring revival. I find that most people, many of you listening to this broadcast, have not yet made the decision to lay your life down for Jesus Christ. And so you will listen to this broadcast to see what I'm going to say and do. But in your heart, you've only gained a separation from your sin, if that, and a separation... <clears throat> is not sufficient. You must have a divorce from your sin and you must leave it behind and walk in the righteousness of Jesus without sinning against Him. I know that's a hard message for a sinner. 
But it is the way of freedom and grace. It is the way of of salvation in Jesus Christ. In Micah, the seventh chapter, Micah writes, What misery is mine! I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard, and there's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie and wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts and the judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. He says, do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. This is the cry of Micah. Everything is is turned to darkness and wickedness. That's where we stand in America today. A very dangerous time for our nation. A time when our nation has put its trust in the political process. It's put its trust in people who are not trustworthy. And on every hand we see wickedness. So how shall we be accepted and loved by the wicked? How shall we be accepted and loved by those who compromise the gospel and proclaim a sinning Christian? How do we compromise with a blasphemer? How do we compromise with a man or a woman who openly admits that their church is worldly, that they brought in every kind of entertainment. How do we compromise with that? How do we compromise with a church that's a business, not a ministry? It's in this utter despair of heart. It's in the loneliness of the of the persecution, Micah. He takes a stand. Micah 7, verse 7, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. And then he begins to speak in such a humble way. I want to share this with you. And I want to say right up front that my enemy is not the outside people. My my enemy is sin. My enemy is the devil. My enemy is the way of wickedness. He writes, do not gloat over me, my enemy. 
though I have fallen, I will rise. Which of us has not fallen? Which of us has not made friends with the world? Which of us has not been lonely in our heart and compromised at times? We live in a world controlled by demonic powers and demonic forces. Jesus does not yet rule this earth. The judgment is coming, and at that time, Satan will be cast into that pit of fire, along with all of those who have compromised with him. I know we want our way. We want Jesus to be whom we want him to be. We want God to be whom we want him to be. We want the church to reflect our values and and what we want and what our pleasure is. We want the church to have the programs that will please our flesh. We want the concerts and we want the skits and the jokes and the casual talk. We want to be able to walk into church and talk about the the sporting events of our day. Sin is the enemy. And Micah says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Many times I have fallen. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. He's talking about, and this is my experience, where I have sinned against God, where I have compromised through the years. I must bear the Lord's wrath, and I have borne his wrath. Some of you think you can just go to Jesus and say, Oh, I've sinned, Jesus, please forgive me, and everything is okay. No, it's not okay. The Lord does not usually quickly forgive a sinner. God does not owe a sinner forgiveness. He owes the sinner judgment and hell. And you will bear the Lord's wrath until he comes and pleads your case. And you may have to wait quite a while before he will come and plead your case. Why? Because he wants to know that you're serious about your repentance. He wants to know that you eagerly desire the kingdom of God which is divine and royal authority being exercised over you. He doesn't want to simply forgive you and then you go on and sin again and go on and sin again. No, he wants you to get serious with him and come into a place of deep, heartbroken, heart-wrenching repentance where you are so clear about what you have done that you will not go back to it again. Ever. And so you sit in darkness, and some of you have called me and said, Pastor, I've wept before the Lord. I've pleaded with him to remove this sin from my heart, but he won't remove it. As though it's the Lord's fault, you still walk 
in your drunkenness. It's not the Lord's fault. And he's not going to forgive your sin quickly or or easily. You're going to have to weep before him. You're going to have to get to the very bottom. You're going to have to say to the Lord, I love my sin. Would you give me a hatred in my heart toward it? Because until you hate your sin, you'll never leave it. Jesus only knows one way of dealing with sin, and that is not by discipline or by growing out of it. Sin must be simply amputated. It must be cut off. And you're going to be unwilling to divorce your sin until you hate your sin and see the depths of what it has done in dumbing you down and stealing from you the very presence of God, bringing darkness into your life. And so you have to light your own fires, you have to create your own images, you have to somehow create your own religion, you have to somehow... Because you're unwilling to endure the pain and the anguish of loneliness, of the darkness... Many of you will refuse to leave your darkness and you will cling to some sentimental belief that Jesus has forgiven you when in fact he has not forgiven you at all. Forgiveness is not granted until you have left your sin. You leave it by the power of the Holy Spirit He does the work in you, but you have to be willing to submit to that work. How can I be very, very straight with you? Prayer and the reading of Scripture will not be sufficient to break the power of sin in your life. You're also going to have to take time to meditate You're going to have to take time to carefully think through what you have done and what the consequences of that action will be in your heart and in your life. And you're going to have to give the Holy Spirit time to come and illuminate your heart before the throne of God. And as you do this, you will weep and you will be broken. Because you will see that all of your sin has been brought into the heavenly realm on the altar of your heart. And as you bring into the throne room of God your wickedness, you are cast out until you are willing to hate your sin and you're willing to let the blood of Jesus wash and cleanse you. You see, there is a place of such intimacy with God. There's a place where finally we begin to understand that God will not allow sin to gloat over us. There is a place where God comes in our walk, where you sit in darkness and you don't light your own lights. You sit in that darkness and you meditate and you say, this is what I have become, Jesus. And deep, heart-rending repentance must take place. We've so cheapened this in the church. 
And so we have cheap Christians who are not saved, who are hellbound, because you have never taken the time to allow yourself to sit in the darkness and hear the word of God and wait on the light of God to come and illumine your heart. So many of you listening today bear the Lord's wrath and you don't even know it. You don't know why this job is gone. You don't know why this sickness has come. You don't know why these things are happening in your life. And you say, poor innocent me, what have I done? Why do I deserve this judgment? Now, I'm not saying that all physical pain is a judgment. Often physical pain and suffering in our lives is a tool that the devil uses to try to destroy us. But it's important that you know that even those attacks of the enemy, Hebrews, the 12th chapter, the Lord said, consider his discipline. Rejoice in your, in your anguish and your hurt, because Jesus will come. Though I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his innocence, righteousness, it's innocence. And then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. And she who said to me, where is the Lord your God? In other words, sin comes and says, look, you haven't been delivered. God's not going to deliver you. You might as well relax and enjoy it. And many of you have believed the lying teaching that you can walk with Jesus and walk in your sin and you're saved because death will be your savior. When you die, you're going to be relieved of your sin. If you'll meditate on that for a little bit, it will make you want to vomit. It's a lie. He says the day for building your walls will come. In the battle, sometimes our walls are all knocked down and we don't have any ability to resist the devil, the flesh, or the world. But when the Lord comes... And he pleads your case. And he establishes your right to be saved. He brings you out into the light. And everything is plainly seen. That now you are washed and clean. And you are following Jesus Christ. Then the day for building your walls will come. That is, building up your complete resistance against that temptation so that your eyes are only on Jesus and you're never going to go back to that discouragement, to that depression, to that despair, because you're not going to eat of the filth of the world any longer. You are going to separate yourself. You're going to separate yourself from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's this inward life in Christ that gives us the strength. And I have to be very, very straight with you today. There are places I can't go. There are people I can't talk with. Because I'm not strong enough in my spirit 
to withstand their appeal. And so I just don't join them. I know where the walls have not been sufficiently built yet. If you don't know where your weaknesses are and where that wall has not been sufficiently built, where Jesus is still in the process of washing and cleansing you and bringing you out into the light, oh, you're not walking in known sin. You just know your weakness. And you're determined you're not going to go back to that. You're going to have to cut off certain associations, certain friends, certain activities. You're not going to be able to do anymore. You're not going to be able to go to that club with the friends you've been with for many years. You're not going to go to that football party. You're going to be caught up in it again. You're not going to sit down in certain people's homes and watch certain movies because you know what that will do to your inner spirit. You know what it will cost you in the darkness because your walls are torn down and the Lord is just beginning to rebuild them. The day will come for extending your boundaries, invading the territory of darkness. Some say that a new believer should quickly go out and testify to everybody. Yes, I'll agree with that. But then after they've made their initial testimony, they should flee from everybody and just find their place in Jesus. It's so easy for a new believer to be so filled with fervor. And then when they begin to hit the wall of of the wickedness of men's hearts, they become hard-edged legalists and begin to say to people, God has rejected you. You are a reprobate. You've not repented the way I told you to, so I'm angry with you. Such foolishness of the young and the new believer. No, they need to be taught, withdraw now into God. Withdraw. Don't go out there again until your walls build up. Until you're prepared to deal with the rejection and the anger. And many of you, you call yourself a Christian, but you have no walls easiest temptation blows you like fluff in the wind because you've never spent any time meditating before the Lord. You'll just say your quick prayer and read your little candy devotional and be on your way with some intellectual ideas that have come to your heart. But no meditation before the Lord, no chewing, no no digesting, and so you don't want any food that you have to chew on because you just want to swallow everything and it gives you indigestion. This broadcast, if you listen to it carefully, will give you indigestion. You're going to have to chew on it before you swallow it. And it gives some people indigestion. That's just what I know because of the feedback I get from you. It says in verse 13 of Micah 7, 
the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. I'm glad it does not say shepherd your people with your rod. The rod is for punishment. The staff is for rescuing. I praise God that the heart of God is not to punish us, but to rescue us. But you need to understand what that rescue entails. It entails loneliness. It entails standing up against the wickedness of this world. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears will become deaf, and they will lick dust like a snake, and like creatures that crawl on the ground, they will come trembling out of their dens. Now, obviously, this whole Micah passage is about the children of the Lord, the children of Israel. But it also has a very personal application as well. Our sin, those nations of sins that have afflicted us. The day will come when they will come out of their holes in our heart like snakes and be utterly cast aside. They will come trembling. Our sins will come trembling trembling out of our hearts. It says, who is like, who is a God like you? Verse 18, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob. I'm so glad it does not say you will be true to Israel. Israel and Jacob, it's one person. But Israel means overcomer. Jacob means heel grabber. All of us have been heel grabbers, grabbing at love, grabbing at acceptance, grabbing at popularity, grabbing at success, grabbing at money, grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. One dear saint said to me, I'm grabbing every day from the table of God to get what I need. Can you imagine thinking that you can grab from the table of God and have his blessing And this person is so upsetting to my heart because when I talk with them, they just gush out like a a flow of blood from their heart. They're so eager to be loved and accepted, so eager to be somebody, so eager to be successful and, and accounted as somebody of power and authority. Breaks my heart. The Lord said he's going to rescue them, rescue us. Now, I know today's message has been very straight. But I want you to know that underneath all of that straightness is the love and mercy and compassion of our God. (laughs) 
but he wants us to stop living in the darkness and to come into the light. And as one dear person said to me, you know, that light of God is fire. Our God is a consuming fire, the word says. That light of God consumes everything that is cheap and tawdry. That light of God consumes all wickedness. It cleanses and purifies and brings us a new heart. Two minutes. And the will of God is written on that heart. And we walk forgiven and saved and transformed by His glory and His grace. Today, if you're walking as a cultural Christian, if you're walking as a person who has an interest in religion, but you've never decided to leave the darkness, I invite you today to get with the Lord Jesus. Sit with Him. It takes time to be holy. It takes time to get right with Jesus. He doesn't just step in and forgive us and send us on our way. No, we will bear His wrath. And it's to bring deep, heartbroken tears and conviction and change into our hearts. This journey to heaven is not quick or easy. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you in Jesus. I'll talk with you soon. able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord the founder of Dallas Theological